the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywood Trust and today I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? Hi, Jared. So this podcast, as everyone should know by now, is produced by Hollywood Trust. We're a community relations focused community organisation based at the heart of Derry and all the conversations that we have through this Forward Together podcast are focused on four things. We're talking about increasing the civic voice, creating a more shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and addressing the constitutional question. So for the today's Forward Focus conversation, Paul, you met with Maeve McLaughlin. Absolutely. And Maeve will be familiar with lots of listeners because she used to be a Sinn Féin MLA, but mm-hmm. she isn't anymore. She is now manager of the conflict transformation and peacebuilding project known as the Derry Model. Yeah. And I think it's important to explain that there is a feeling, certainly in Derry, uh, across much of Northern Ireland, that actually Derry achieves certain things in terms of dealing with some of the difficult, challenging issues. I and mean, broadly, the retail centre of Derry came to a halt every time there was an Apprentice Boy march or yeah. one of the other loyal orders marching in the city. And through negotiation and through conversations brokered to a large extent by the business community, they achieved a amicable settlement, which meant that the loyal orders were able to walk through the city and parade without it, be, it, without it generating any particular controversy or countermarches. Mm. And at the same time, the, the, the business centre was able to operate. And at the same time, people weren't prevented from going about their normal business and getting into and out of their own home. So broadly, yeah. that was the Derry model of transformation of difficult issues. And Maeve is the appointed manager of the the, the centre that seeks to uh, tr- give out information on that model yeah. to the rest of Northern Ireland. Okay, and I should say as well that I sit on the advisory board of this project as a representative of Hollywell Trust and delighted to do so too. So... Maeve had an interesting conversation. She talks about, uh, starts talking about the rights-based agenda uh, as a way of addressing things here. That's right. Um, But she also goes on to talk about the fact that people need to take risks. And I Mm. think that is really the heart of what's been happening in Derry. You don't make progress unless people are willing to take risks and move beyond their comfort zone and actually being willing to be conciliatory and compromise. Yeah, and she also talks about leadership and the real for the need for real leadership there and learning lessons that we can or sharing with others. And and she uses a phrase in the conversation which I thought was really quite interesting, which is about cascading learning. Mm. And I think it's a nice phrase and actually, you know, it it does indicate the fact that we do need to learn from best practice examples. And really, you know, achieving what has been achieved in Derry in terms of resolving the parading disputes, you know, it's a major, major just there, actually, yeah. you know, and there are learnings there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, let's hear from Maeve now. Joined here by Maeve McLaughlin. Maeve, can you tell me your official title with the Derry Model, please? Yes, uh, I'm currently manager of the Conflict Transformation Peace Building Project, which has become known as the Derry Model. Thank you very much for doing this. Now, I want to start by asking, how do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Well, I do believe that. I suppose the strengthening of any society has to be based on a rights-based agenda. Um, I think I'm probably looking at this from top down a bit, um, but I do believe that if 
the framework, the legislative framework, isn't in place to protect, um, support, give redress to residents, to um, people in society, that we're missing a trick. Uh, and I think we've, we've missed that debate in, in, in many ways. Um, I do think that rights have to be looked at in the broadest possible way that we, I think, for too long looked at rights simply as human rights. Um, and I think the whole debate, one of suppose, the positive things around the development of a Bill of Rights was that understanding um, that rights are, are social, they're economic, um, but they have to be enshrined in law. Um, and I do think that whilst we can have all of the engagements, if you like, across sections of society, um, that if we don't have that legislative framework. I, I found that growing up, particularly in this community in the Bogside, where the whole kind of issue of sectarianism is not something that defined me. It's something that I felt was, was became a symptom of, of our conflict here. But my, I suppose, objective or overview of the conflict here was about injustice. And whilst I recognise that a lot of really, really very important engagements and projects and initiatives took place across what was perceived both communities, if that rights-based agenda wasn't addressed, people simply went under their own communities. And certainly as a, as, as a Republican growing up in the Bogside, that sense of, I don't have redress, I don't have protection in law, was very strong for me. Um, maybe not as defined when I was growing up, but it was very, very strong. So to, in order to strengthen civic society, I think we have to do it on the basis of that framework, which is the broadest possible um, rights-based agenda that we can move towards. But that sounds to me as if you're saying that unless we have the framework for rights first, we can't have civil society functioning, whereas I would have hoped that we could have civil society functioning more effectively to create a recognition of the need to move forward on Well, I, I think we do have civil society functioning to a degree, and I think in this study it's a good example of it. Um, that it works and there's a lot of work, and, and, and you know, Derry's looked at as an example of good practice, of, of, you know, of active participation. Um, of standing up and be heard. So, you know, I think there is an element of that. We could all say it could be better. Um, and when you have that coupled with objective need, that brings its own challenges to civil society. I don't think it is an either or. But I do believe that if we miss that legislation, which ultimately means we can have all of the functioning civil society and civic society that we, that we need. But if a person believes or a section of society believes that their rights are not enshrined or not protected or not able to be redressed then we are missing a trick in my view i think because probably more so of where society coming out of conflict that both have to happen both have to people have to have a sense that there's justice in the system and there's there's the broadest definition of rights is is there and can be can be upheld. And you say that Derry is a model and the obvious example there is the issues around parading. So what can 
the rest of Northern Ireland learn in terms of strengthening civil society from the lessons and pr- sorting out parading in Derry? Well, I suppose, I mean, it's back to the, this notion of what have we done in the city? What have we managed to achieve in the city? And I suppose from my perspective, it is not one thing. Uh, we couldn't say the Derry model, for example, equals this set of circumstances or experience. I think it's a mixture. I think it's our demographics. I think it's, in some ways, we had leadership. We had people who were willing to take risks. Um, so we have sets of experiences. Um, I wouldn't be naive enough to say we can simply lift those experiences and tailor them into other areas. But no doubt we have templates. We have a sense of people who were willing to take risks. That is a big, important message for all our communities. So I suppose in answer to that, it's, it's how we use those experiences to cascade that learning to other places. And again, that's not to say that, you know, it's all going to fit perfectly. Um, I suppose in terms of parading, one of the big pieces coming out of the engagement we're doing in Derry is that the relationship, for example, that the apprentice boys would have in this city with the residence group groups and the relationship that we would have here in the Museum of Free Dairy with the Siege Museum is unique. Um, also in this city was the role of the business community and the fact that the business community, not all, but elements within the business community played a very proactive role in trying to reach an accommodation. Now, the reality is that that's not going to just simply translate to other areas because quite frankly, if it doesn't impact on a business and doesn't hit a business person in their pocket, they will not want to have to be dragged to the table to negotiate these things out. But nonetheless, I think we have experiences. We have templates. I mean, if we think about the parading issue, even the, the process of developing what some people will call an accommodation, some people will call an agreement, was a process where even down to the wording that was used, that other areas can learn by. The whole debate about when you have rights, you have responsibilities was a big lesson in this city. And again, as somebody who would have been very involved with the the residence group locally, that was a challenge for for all sorts of people in in all sorts of different communities. Uh, The whole, if if you think about the debate around the diamond and marching around the diamond, the diamond, should be, and I don't even like using words like that, but it should be perceived as your city centre and neutral, a neutral place to be. And I suppose what, what Derry was able to do at that stage was say, that's right and you're entitled to have your commemoration, um, but you also need to look at the rights and, and, and I suppose responsibilities also of other smaller, more rural areas. So Derry was almost able to act as big brother or big sister in that regard. But one religious leader said to me that one of the reasons why the situation has been resolved, one of those special factors about Derry, was that there was a clearly that Derry is a nationalist republican city. So there wasn't that sense of, well, who owns the place? Mm-hmm. And that assisted it. So therefore, that might mitigate against those lessons being learned elsewhere. I, I do agree with that, and that, and that's what I mean about the demographics of here as well. I think that a couple of things. I think the siege of Derry happened on the west bank of the city and therefore people who wanted to commemorate, which they're absolutely entitled to do, 
also knew that that engagement had to take place in order for them to, to commemorate what was a significant event for large sections of the community. And I also think that there is an element within Republicans, which was about that risk taking, and was about saying, you know, as we move this society on, this is certainly not about doing onto you what was done onto us. So, and I wouldn't say that that was absolutely foolproof across Republicanism, because there's a lot of learning that went on in, within Republicanism and Nationalism, but I have no doubt that the fact that it was a Republican city that, that, that we were collectively able to take those risks. And also importantly, I think, uphold the rights of, of smaller, more vulnerable, beleaguered communities like Balahi, like the Honour Road, like parts of Belfast. So the, all of those conversations were in the mix. Now, I suppose what I would say is that agreements or accommodations are also fragile. And they're as good as the time that's in it. Um, in a lot of ways but one of the important things for me is that it's there in place and that it can kick in when, when, when need be. I mean when we look at for example the Maiden City Accord between the Bands Forum um, who will say that those processes of potentially sanctioning or disciplining individual band members or entire bands is in place. And that was a very significant message, I think, to the city, that people were taking this seriously, and all of the, you know, all of the, if you like, the hangers on that were coming with some of the, the, the events, and people being drunk and alcohol and all the activities that was going on around it, could the community could take control of that through that Maiden City Accord. So there's templates, there's models, they're not, they're as fragile as the time that's in it, but nonetheless they exist. And to go back to where we started from, what you're saying really is that the solution to parading the city came out of nationalists and republicans recognising the rights of bands to march in the city and to celebrate their culture. And that was equated with responsibilities within the bands to ensure good behaviour on both sides. Yeah, or on their yeah side. I, I think so. I mean, I think it, it also was probably spurred on by a commitment to the city and by people who genuinely wanted to be in a better place. I mean, I think there was there was an element to that. And I know even talking to some of the apprentice boys, that would be their chance as well. They loved the city. They wanted the city to be perceived and presented in a very positive light. So, but there's no doubt that the, the demographics, the largely Republican nationalist city, um, spurred on those conversations. And I think, importantly, yes... Um, it was that big, big debate around when you've rights, you've also responsibilities. So to move more broadly, how do we achieve social transformation in ways that allow all of society to move forward? Well, I suppose it, it very much goes into, for me, the, the whole concept of regeneration, if you like, as well. And the debate around what we've been doing in the city hasn't been delivering the outcomes that we need. And that debate that we've all been through over a number of years around the city's one plan and the huge learning from that again, that, that things like social transformation and regeneration are not just economic. You know, they're, they're, it's not just this notion of, you know, build it and they will come. It's, it's that regeneration, transformation has to be about 
economic, social and, and physical. Um, and it also has to be about addressing objective need. And I think that's a key bit. While we continue to have huge pockets of deprivation in the city, you know, again, in the absence of that rights-based framework for redress, that we will not change the outcomes until we, the famous phrase, start targeting that need. And I remember the debates in this city where sections of society did not like that debate, did not like the fact that we collectively had to do things differently, and didn't certainly didn't like the notion that we have to target need. But it was very clear that if we keep doing what we're doing, we're not going. We're going to have the same outcomes. So I think social transformation, regeneration, is in the widest possible sense. It's about like rights, um, but it also has to take into account that it is not just, you know, for example, the McGee debate, where we would talk and have talked for many years about this is not just bombs and seats. This cannot be moving to X amount of students by twenty twenty five if you don't address the types of courses that are needed to ensure that those young people or older people stay in the city or come back to the city and link them up with job opportunities. So it's that whole thing that, you know, almost if we, we thought for a while, if we shout, it will come. Uh, and I think it's much deeper than that. So it's the broadest possible sense of, of both defining what transformation and regeneration is, and also targeting the need that exists. If we're talking about targeting need, we are talking fundamentally about how the economy works. And is there an implication from what you're saying that a lot of the tensions between communities would be resolved if we actually had a better economy? And you know, the thing which I've repeatedly say is that we haven't had a peace dividend coming out of Good Friday Agreement. So is there a sense in your mind that we actually have to get the economy right if we're going to achieve better social relations? Look, I think we do. I mean, I think people, people's quality of life is critical to all of this. Um, people sort of moving beyond the, 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 the benefit culture that exists as well and, and, and the dire poverty that that puts people into. There's no doubt. But again, for me, that's about what type of economy do we need? What... And again, we would have had these debates where the likes of, you know, Invest NI, and I've been quite critical of them over many, many years, didn't look at the particular set of circumstances that we have here. And I'm not saying it's all INI, because I think as a city, as a people, we didn't work out what our selling point was, what our unique selling point was. Uh, again, back to that point, it's not just shouting, they'll come. So I do think we have to address the economic issues. I do think people do deserve a better quality of life. And I think if we kind of maybe just touch the surface around, there's more jobs coming in and that's great, and not really identify what they are, why they're needed, who are they for, what's the outcomes, are they sustainable? I think you know, we've, we've seen probably generations of people who've went down to, well, the textile industry is, is the obvious one, but moved into all sorts of other jobs as well that were kind of badly paid and companies pulled out. Um, so, yes, the type of economy um, is, is, is key as well. And 
I suppose that is in and around the skill set. Because if we, you know, we can have announcements about really good, high-paid quality work, and we all know this because we've been around enough corners to know it, that the sk- there's a skills mismatch. So what is it that we need to do as a people to bring that up as well? So it's whilst it's economy, whilst it's quality of life, it's not just on its own. I think it's that wider. I haven't got quite in my mind how the the strengthening of the economy will will work through in terms of improving you know the shared experience mm, of communities mm, that are mm. currently divided. Well, I suppose I reflect on my own situation. If all of the all of the work that you do, and I've done a lot of work over the years, um, both as a teenager and right through on a cross-community basis, um, both as youth worker and as a, a person who participants, participated in a number of those programmes and initiatives. And I've always had the view that that was all sound, important work. But if it didn't address, and I always felt like you are just going back into your own place. You are just going back into your own place. So your shed of circumstances, okay, you might know more... Um, Protestant Unionist Loyalists as a result of a week in Holland or a week in England or a, a camp somewhere but you're going back into your own set of circumstances so your set of circumstances is is less better than somebody else and yet you can't get access to those jobs that education you know way back the right to vote the right to challenge, I mean, I think the right to challenge is an important one too in terms of, you know, justice. There was nothing in the, in the legal system that supported me as a young person growing up in the box side to say, I want to take that case to find out what happened here. So I think that whilst you have a disparity in economic opportunities for one section of society over another, then you have the root cause of... Not conflict, but disaffection. We haven't really today, though, got a situation where Protestants are, you know, favoured over Catholics. I mean, it's, you've got pretty well 50-50 in terms of the workplace mm-hmm. spread. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got probably a higher educational outcome amongst the Catholic teenagers than you do amongst Protestant mm-hmm. teenagers. There's a lot of problems with in terms of Protestant disadvantage. But are you saying that having more shared workplaces is actually a practical way of breaking down a lot of those community tensions? See, I, I, I am not opposed to shared workplaces, I'm not opposed to um, shared education, integrated education, I think it all has its place. But again, I think the framework needs to be in place as well, the legislative framework has to be in place to protect those rights. And I suppose, I mean, you're right to point out that things have changed, the dynamics in the city have changed. and. We now have a PEL community that are quite nervous uh, and apprehensive about what that future would be and that things like the civil rights debate where they would perceive that civil rights was just hijacked by Republicans for a particular aim or the exodus debate. And I suppose the big message is that this isn't about doing onto a community what was done onto another community. But 
and that is a challenge. It's a challenge in this city, I think, because there is that nervousness there. But I, I do harbour on the point that, that all of those pieces are part of coming out of conflict and they're all sound and good initiatives and positive initiatives in their own right. But you have to address the wider framework to protect um, and enhance everyone. And one of the other barriers to us making progress clearly is the legacy issue. So how, how can we deal, in your opinion, with the past in a way that takes us forward? And, and how does reconciliation fit within that? Well, truth is, is, is a big part of this. And certainly in the work that I'm doing with, through the dairy model, that is a common denominator. In a lot of conversations that I'm having with families, that justice is very has very many shades. Um, people have different interpretations of justice. Um, you know, if we even look at the, the issue here, the blood is on duty. Um, for the for the large majority of families, the apology from David Cameron. Um, was enough to let them get on with the rest of their lives. And, you know, there's people within that wider catchment that, that want the prosecutions. Um, but there's people have different views of what not those prosecutions will come to. So when I talk to the likes of the Dublin Monaghan families, for example, they will say, we don't know where we fit into in terms of even the legacy process in the six counties. We're kind of outside of that and we don't know how we feed in. But the uniting factors is the need for truth. Now, I think importantly, and we've, we've and I think this is an important point, but the whole issue about apology, and when that public apology from David Cameron was huge in relation to conflict transformation in the city, because I think it gave people, it gave people an assurance, it gave people a confidence, it gave people a sense of, oh my God, and the history of relationships between England and Ireland, this is this is huge. We've probably never capitalised on that enough, but the work that I've been doing around apologies is that there has been hundreds of apologies um, from the IRA, from loyalist groupings, from British ministers. Um, I wasn't aware until like last year that um, one of the British junior ministers had apologised about the McGurk's Bar Massacre but it was like 20 past 11 in the House of Commons at night um, nobody there and it meant nothing to the families so it's where an apology has to be attached to a process and I suppose in Derry it was attached to the inquiry so I think there's, there's lessons from that I think the whole notion of truth and truth recovery is important and what I find sometimes is that there's a lot of that going on in rooms and in projects and in initiatives, which again probably just needs to be harnessed a bit more. But I suppose opening up of the fountain for the inquests, all of those goes without saying, needs to kick in um, to allow people to get that sense of this is what happened, this is my truth. And truth will be hard. But it's also, you know, this, this conflict over what truth is. Mm. And so do we need to strive for objective truth or do we accept that there are different views of what was true? I think we agree that there's different views of what was true. I mean, we have to agree that there's a number of different narratives 
in, in this conflict. And I think if we start from that basis, uh, it's an important point. For, for example, the, the recent engagement that I did with former British soldiers, I know that people would think that's really strange bedfellows, that's really, that's, that, and people could may, may have been quite resistant to it. But for those guys who all were different age groups, were all in different regiments, but all served here, it was quite, it, it turned every, if you like, stereotype on its head, both for them and for the ex-combatants and for victims of British Army violence. And it, what they heard here was people's truths. They, they came to serve here mostly economic, um, to get a job, to get away from their father a lot of times, um, but came here with a perception of what this place was and what their role was and either left or came to it later, that that was completely at odds um, with what was actually happening. So they were exposed to a whole lot of truths. Um, you know, one of the engagements was with a former green jacket who, whose regiment were accused of the murder of Kelly Thompson and Craven. And that was quite a challenge and conversation for the individual soldier because he genuinely believed that that regiment were not as bad as others and he that was his reality that was his truth and it was quite it was actually quite emotional for him uh, as it was for the family involved so i think we need to accept that we have different narratives but it's okay i mean that's one of the things i suppose that this city is probably good at is saying look Here's our story, and up until nineteen seventy two in the Museum of Freedom. Here's the story of the siege. That's fine. And and people, what what I find, for example, even in, in engagement with loyalism, they're quite shocked that that can happen here, and can happen for the most part okay. But hanging over everything is the question over the constitutional situation. So how do we have the broader conversation over the future constitutional arrangements? of the island in a manner that is open, inclusive, not threatening? Well, I think we all have to become the persuaders um, across society. I, you know, um, of, as an Irish Republican, firmly of the view that it just makes sense um, economically, socially, uh, that we work a system of governance that is about self-determination that is about the island of Ireland um, cooperating and working together. It is not, and I think it's about dispelling the myths as well too, um, because people can tend to look at this debate and think you just want to tag on to Dublin and it's as far removed um, as anything. Sometimes I suppose, and we've again had this conversation, that it's about who's best to be the persuaders. And I have no doubt that Republicans can get into rooms, as I can, with working-class loyalists, with groups aligned to the UDA and the UVF, and we can have the conversations and actually make the connections from a working-class perspective um, and, and work collectively on some, some of those issues. But I'm also pragmatic enough to know that, that it might not always have to be Republicans in those rooms to do that. And... I can see, as related, I can see the nervousness 
within the PEL community locally here. So I think there's a collective responsibility on all of us to say, right, let's put this on the table. Let's, you know, if this issue is about exodus, if this issue is about civil rights, if this issue is just the hurt that has been caused as a result of the conflict, let's get it out here. But the big message has to be, as we move forward again, and I've said it a couple of times, it is not about doing on to that community, what was done on to the community that I grew up in. And that's a big message. Now, who's best to deliver it is another debate. Um, but we all have to become the persuaders. And then there's practical things, um, like, for example, the issue of health, which is the one that comes up constantly when people talk about any particular, any reunification issue, that people need to get a sense of this again is not tagging on to the 26 counties per se. It's about a completely new system of delivery. And that requires massive work, but it also requires practical examples to people of how it will work. And I suppose, again, in this city, we have managed to do at a kind of more, if you like, strategic level around things like the, the cancer centre, even the Children's Hospital link, Belfast Dublin link. So there's, there's the air ambulance issue. Those debates are there. There's models. Um, but for the most part, when it hits people in their back pocket, and I had a woman just a few days ago saying her granddaughter, she had to take her granddaughter to the doctor in Donegal, and it was like, it was £50 before anything even happened, you know. Um, and that's just completely alien to people here. So we have to ensure that people get a sense of here's practically how that would work out. And it's not just a case of saying, oh, no, the Brits are all gone, now there's no border, and we're all, we're just tagged on, and, and that's fine. So that's not what it's about. And I do think, you know, there's, there's Republicans who would have a sense of, is that what it's about? You know, that it's just that tag on, when the focus for so many years was, was fighting the Brits out of the country. Um, but the, the, any right-thinking, strategic um, activist would have their head around, this is, this is a whole... This is a whole shift. This is a whole new system of governance. So in answer to your question, we have to become the persuaders. Who are the persuaders? I think it's a mixed bag. Um, and again, I know we refer to the recent conference in Belfast, all shades of, 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 of nationalism, republicanism there. And that's potentially a good, a good model of how we can debate out, thrash out and lobby for that increased awareness as well. And are you saying that that conversation needs to take place with a reasonably open agenda in terms of what a new settlement would look like when you're discussing these things with loyalists and unionists? I think so. I mean, what, for example, even the wording, when, when I talk to loyalists about this, they say, uh, an agreed Ireland. And even that, that word is important. So... I think, yes, there's, there's, Republicans have a set of kind of ideals, principles, which has always been about that 32 county socialist republic. And we have, from ever I remember, have had those discussions about what that looks like, what, you know, how do you do that, how do you manage it, what, it's not just a tag on, what does a new economic system look like, what does a new health system look like. 
So that's not going to shift. And I wouldn't want it to shift. But I think that there's others that have a key role in all of that as well. And that the, the broader the voice, if you like, the broader the representative voice that can get into rooms and get into conversations, the better. Maeve McLaughlin, Dairy Model, thank you very much thank indeed. You. That was Maeve McLaughlin there from the Dairy Project. So Paul, she talks about, uh, Maeve talks about the quality of life mm. being, as being something important uh, as we move forward here. And I think that is one of the consistent messages we're getting from these conversations, Gerard. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fact that people believed there was going to be a peace dividend yeah. off the back of the Good Friday Agreement. And as we heard recently from Martin McGill, you know, in, in Belfast too, there was a feeling that the deprived communities didn't get that peace dividend. And unless you're going to actually get a, a change in the well-being of communities, mm-hmm. where there are jobs, well-paid jobs, a change in the standard of living, the quality of life, then actually you're not making real progress. And that progress that has been made isn't you know isn't isn't sufficiently on fa- uh, solid foundations? Yeah, it's not sustainable. And she talks about the PUL's um, response as well. The PUL, I should say, Protestant Unionist Loyalist Community's response um, to the dairy model and moving forward as well. Yeah, the phrase that she uses is that she could understand the PUL nervousness around it, mm-hmm. and and I think that is an important thing. You know, so it's it's fine that we celebrate success. But we need to recognise that, you know, movement doesn't only go in one direction. It can go into reverse as well. Yeah. And we can't take things for granted. And we actually have to continue to talk, negotiate, discuss. And that way you make progress. OK. Well, that's that for this episode. Uh, keep an eye out for future episodes through hollywelltrust.com and sluggerotool.com. Um, thanks to me for taking the time to meet with Paul and to Dee Kern and Emer Dory for production support and we look forward to talking to you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.